Welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. This is your co-host, Patrick Patyandi. And this is your other co-host, Leticia Wiggins. So for many around the world, suicide bombing conjures up images of deluded or crazed individuals, just as they hold an almost lurid fascination for their willingness to kill themselves while killing others. So certainly since September 2001, the suicide bomber has held a central place in the psyche of world affairs. Since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, Iraq has suffered some 1,500 attacks. And occasional bombing continues to capture headlines. In 2013, however, the Middle East, which experienced some 153 suicide attacks, accounted for only 50% of worldwide attacks. Just as many individuals tend to think of suicide bombing as a recent or even novel phenomenon, this topic has a much more nuanced and tangled history than at first glance. And in this show, we explore the complex background of suicide bombing with three guests. Hi, I'm Corbin Williamson. I'm a PhD student in military history here at Ohio State, and my dissertation looks at uh, cooperation between the Western navies in the post-World War II era. My name is Jonathan Romaneski. I'm also a graduate student here, second year in uh, the Department of History, and I'm also a veteran of uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Lewis. I'm a lecturer in the Undergraduate International Studies Program here at Ohio State University. And I'm the author of the book, The Business of Martyrdom, A History of Suicide Bombing, published by the Naval Institute Press in 2012. Excellent. Thanks for joining us today. So first off, why is suicide bombing a modern phenomenon? When and why did it begin? And we'll give Jeffrey this question first. I'd, to, to keep it simple, I'd say the bomb, the modern bomb is what created the suicide bomber. The development of uh, higher power explosives with more reliable means of ignition changed the role of individuals. Uh, because there have been suicidal missions as long as we've had conflict. Uh, the difference between the suicide bomber and, say, the Spartans who fought to the death at Thermopylae, their mission depended on their skill in fighting. Death was perhaps anticipated, but not necessary. In suicide bombing, the human being becomes literally just a control mechanism. Their death is both anticipated and necessary for the mission to be executed successfully. Yeah, I think that Jeff's got a great definition uh, in terms of putting it putting it in terms of, of technology, humans as smart guidance systems for uh, a technological device, a weapon. You know, we can we can sort of boil down um, the concept of suicide bombing to just self-sacrificial violence, and we can trace it all the way back. Even if we use the concept of of technology, I mean. The, Human beings forming, uh, say, a phalanx in ancient Greece, um, that's still a technological system every bit as much. I think, um, I think one really useful um, characteristic of, of the concept of suicide bombing is the way that it's used strategically, uh, the way it's leveraged in, in popular media, and the psychological and moral effects that it has. And the, the human element in terms of the guidance system... Uh, is an important point to bring out, in part because uh, that's often seen as one of the attractive features of a suicide bomb. It can be targeted, there can be changes made in the target, um, even up to the moment of detonation. It's actually the accuracy and precision um, of the system that leads the U.S. Navy after the Second World War, because of its experience with kamikazes, to develop guided missiles, because of they were impressed with the accuracy of kamikaze attacks and the ability to change course and vector laid into the attack. 
Well, this is like a great segue to our next question and building upon what we've been looking at so far. We were wondering if there are differences or similarities in how suicide bombing works over time and place. And for example, is the suicide bombing of Russians in the 19th century similar to the kamikaze bombers of Japan in World War II to the more recent patterns that are emanating from the Middle East? And Corbin, if you'd like to start us off with this question, too. Well, certainly in terms of, since the question references kamikazes, in terms of aircraft, uh, the use of piloted aircraft against other aircraft um, or against uh, ground targets or naval targets extends back to the First World War, that we have instances of pilots using their planes to ram other planes when they felt that they couldn't win in a combat situation. On the first day of the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941, there were over 100 instances of Soviet pilots ramming German aircraft because they didn't feel that their uh, equipment was capable of performing adequately um, against German aircraft. Uh, In the Pacific, there's examples even as early as 1942 of American and British pilots. um, Once their plane is damaged, crashing into the ship that they were targeting, um, aware that they wouldn't survive a return flight. Um, But the widespread use of uh, aircraft as uh, suicide vehicles doesn't come until 1944, October, when the Japanese begin to use uh, aircraft in this role on a large scale. And it's primarily born out of desperation. Uh, the inability to effectively target um, American ships leads to the use of kamikazes. You actually see, see the same thing in the European theater. The Germans in 1945 develop a, a group of aircraft or a squadron that is uh, specifically uh, tasked to ram Allied bombers because their air defenses have been so ineffective. Well, they know that this will be ineffective. And the group does fly several missions towards the end of the war with several successful rammings. I think that um, the, the kamikaze attacks in, in World War II, there's a, there's a critical difference between them and uh, modern, modern day, and by that I mean contemporary, um, incidents of suicide bombings in the Middle East uh, especially. The, the critical difference is that the, the Japanese kamikaze pilots were still members of the Japanese armed forces. They were in uniform. They had a uh, military vehicle recognizable by the parameters of the Geneva Conventions, I guess. Uh, today, what we're looking at in the Middle East, and especially in, in the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, is uh, combatants who use civilian status to um, as, basically as camouflage. And uh, it, it just, to me, that highlights the way that suicide bombings can be used as a tactic only uh, within a larger strategy. I'd say, um, on the one hand, there's a similarity, which is how the people are used. That goes back to that um, functional definition of suicide bomber as the you know, guidance system, whether it's a state, whether it's a non-state actor. Um, that's the common denominator. With Imperial Russia, the key difference is it was a very haphazard, uh, improvised use of suicide bombing. It was not organizationally mediated. Uh, basically, groups like the People's Will started wanting to use dynamite. They found out the hard way that it was terribly unreliable, so they switched from large emplaced bombs to smaller bombs that you could throw by hand, about five, six pounds. The problem was you had to be actually fairly close to your target. And so even if the explosion didn't kill you, you would certainly be arrested. So the decision to even undertake this type of an assassination attempt meant that you basically had come to the realization that your life was forfeit. And so it was just a small leap from throwing the bomb and understanding that you were going to be arrested and executed to getting even closer 
and throwing the bomb so close that it affected you. So that's the key. It was kind of a, uh, an improvised form of attack. They never developed an organizational mechanism for making the bombs, selecting targets, and then exploiting the media potential after. That's the key difference that we see with all these, and whether it's Japan, whether it's Hezbollah, these other organizational components are there. Somebody else builds the bomb. Somebody else builds or acquires the delivery vehicle. Somebody else ascertains the target. Uh, often you have people escorting the individual to the point of attack. Once the individual is dead, their image is managed by the organization in order to extract maximum propaganda value. So with that, then the last point, yeah, suicide bombing varies from organization to organization. Some are very rigid. Japan, very, very strict hierarchical control. Uh, global jihadism, much more fluid mechanisms of control. You know, you know, they use small arms and indirect fire weapons differently as well. So a lot of people, I think, have a hard time wrapping their head around suicide bombing, right, um, and why someone would do this, quote-unquote. And it seems like people maybe are able to view maybe the kamikaze bomber as more rational than a someone taking part in a more fluid sort of suicide bombing attempt. I guess what I'd say there with the kamikaze, the organizational component is pretty straightforward. Part of the Japanese military um, with the suicide bombing that we've seen in recent years, it's much easier, I think, um, to just see the bomber and see that as the sum total. So is, it, is it harder to understand then? I, I think so, because what I'm asking. it doesn't make sense as an individual psychological mm-hmm. phenomenon um, unless you understand the bigger organizational context. Now, it's quite possible some suicide bombers do have psychological motivations and issues that aren't necessarily rational, uh, don't necessarily make sense. But the organization, on the other hand, has different motivations and can make use of that individual. Um, An eyewitness to the 1983 um, suicide bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut, uh, the famous story was that the, the bomber drove past a Marine checkpoint and the bomber was smiling as he was going to his death, which was really a, a horrifying thing to contemplate. Um, but one of the Marine guards later said, you know, there might have been a fanatic driving that truck, but I guarantee you there was a cold, calculating, rational mind behind that. And I think with contemporary suicide bombing, we've got this lurid fascination. We look at the bomber, we look at the carnage, and we see nothing more than that. So moving explicitly into the practical policy arena, what can we learn from looking at earlier patterns of suicide bombing about why people act this way, and maybe even more importantly, how we can prevent such activities in the future? Suicide bombing is most effective for organizations when you get both tactical and strategic benefit. Tactical, you get ammunition that's interactively guided by human intelligence up to the point of definition. It's a precision-guided munition, I mean, basically. But strategically, what the organizations do is they exploit the willingness of the individual to die. They often use terms like martyr, um, and that can resonate with their community. I mean, suicide bombing, we may not realize, but it's directed usually toward the reference community as much as the adversary. That's meant to be inspirational. But when that organizational role becomes too clear, suicide bombing seems less like martyrdom and more like you're just using up young men and young women for your own purpose. And we've got evidence that there have been what what we call remote control martyrs, people blown up by remote control that didn't even know it. Well, that's not inspirational. And so the point of all of this is that in previous instances of suicide bombing, most cases, communities have played a, a, a strong role in determining whether or not suicide bombing will be sustainable. They either support the endeavor or they reject it. There's exceptions. The global jihadis really don't speak for anybody and don't have a constituency. They use suicide bombing indiscriminately. Most other groups, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, others, are trying to reach a group. They're trying to represent a group. 
So I would guess for policy, the thing that we have to be um, careful in noting is that suicide bombing functions best tactically and strategically when there is a community that supports it. And if we can separate the bombers and communities from that that society, we're likely to uh, uh, take a big step toward damping the whole thing down. That that point speaks well, I think, to what I was thinking earlier, um, which was that, you know, talking about how difficult it is to comprehend the concept of a suicide attack, we, we think that um, if we think that the 9-11 hijackers, for example, were nothing short of insane um, Islamic fundamentalist uh, radicals and that they were brainwashed. Uh, but when we think about it in terms of dying for a higher cause, it's it's not so foreign and alien. I mean, in, in our own society, we are are rightly so very reverent of those who, in our opinions, have died for freedom. And the the same concept is sort of at play here. Suicide attackers believe that they're dying for a higher cause, something larger than themselves. So the way you undercut that is by is by exposing the inherent contradictions in, in what they're doing. When I was in Iraq, for example, we, we had a, uh, a day when we were, we were getting briefed on uh, significant activities over the last 24 hours, and we had learned that a, a Sunni faction had strapped a suicide vest, not, not even appropriately called a suicide vest anymore because it was more like a murder vest, but they, they strapped this bomb to a mentally handicapped woman uh, direct pointed her into a crowded um, market and remote detonated her, and uh, you know that's that's the sort of thing that uh, is, um, you know, it's it's still humans using other humans, as Jeff has said, uh, for as a weapon. Uh, but then it's 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 up to us uh, on the other side of that to um, to exploit that in 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 the propaganda fight, which is really the mm-hmm. larger the larger issue. I think there's also something to be said for correctly understanding the historical background that suicide bombing draw or so often draws upon. Uh, in the Japanese case, you know, they're, they're attempting to replicate um, these uh, typhoons that destroyed invading fleets that attacked Japan. Uh, you can look at militaries across the world. All of them, they'll often have last stands that they memorialize, whether it's Thermopylae or the Alamo. And I think sometimes um, making those last stands or those historical references um, more complicated, um, less romanticized can be a useful way to um, separate the um, the or to reduce the ability to draw upon a historical analogy and a great way to make history relevant right okay. to today so excellent yeah, and I mean these are all really great examples, and we 're guessing for a lot of our listeners when the topic of suicide bombing does come up they might think of the Middle East initially you know as we hear today there's a lot of other examples we can look at aren't there? And so we kind of want to learn more about this larger process by comparing these different examples and by taking some of the focus off the Middle East. Should we do that? And how might be a good way to kind of discuss this? Well, I think that um, an an appropriate place to start is by looking at ourselves. And as I alluded to earlier, I I think that there is a uh, a larger theme here of, of dying for something higher, something something that is greater than you, dying for a cause, in other words. And, and we can look at our own um, violent past here in the United States, the, the wars that we have done, and uh, in, in some cases, the atrocities that we have committed, although those, those go hand in hand with, uh, I guess, the righteous moral crusades that we're familiar with, whether it's the Civil War or World War II. 
pervading all of these incidents, we have this theme of of dying for a sacred cause. And um, I've, I've recently I've recently studied and written on this this idea that during um, the American Civil War. Americans were uh, fighting for a higher cause, almost with a religious zeal, uh, literally with a religious zeal, in fact. And uh, they had the consolation of heaven uh, when when they died, and that helped motivate them to lay their lives down. And there are many societal factors that went into this. There was sort of a culture of death before the Civil War started. So identifying forces, processes Mm -hmm. like that, I think, help us understand the the dynamics behind self-sacrificial violence. Yeah, I would say uh, the best way to understand it as a more generalizable phenomenon is to recognize the organizational character. I've argued that it basically is an alternative technology. Um, when you look at the decision-making from the perspective of the organization, it's usually done to uh, redress an imbalance in forces or capabilities, um, whether that was the you know kind of uh, improvised bombing of Imperial Russia, the kamikaze in the Second World War, Hezbollah versus the United States and Israel, and so on and so forth. Um, It's organizations utilizing the available resources to the best of their ability to create a weapon that they can deploy against their adversary. And one reason then why we would say that there's a lot of suicide bombing in the Middle East is because we've got high-tech militaries, the American and the Israelis, active in the Middle East. If we were to be active in other parts of the world, I would imagine that we might see suicide bombing elsewhere. Ask the Sri Lankan army about suicide bombing. They fought one of the most ferocious guerrilla organizations for 30 years, uh, the Tamil Tigers. Uh, The Tamil Tigers made extensive use of suicide bombers, not just bombers, but small naval um, vehicles piloted by suicide pilots, or I don't know if you'd call them suicide captains. Um, So I think that the best way of just decoupling it from a specific region and a specific culture is to understand it as a kind of a technology, understand it as organizations using individual human beings to a specific end. In terms of uh, two non-Middle Eastern examples, two come to mind. First is the, um, in in a Western military context, one of the earliest uh, suicide missions was when, uh, in the early modern era, an army would surround um, a fort or a castle, and if at any point, the army decided to storm um, to try to take the castle by force instead of waiting it out by siege. Uh, the initial group of soldiers that would go through a breach in the wall, the Dutch called them the Fileren Hoopen, which is where we get the term forlorn hope. Um, something that is not, you're not, there's not a good outcome expected from that, because so often that group of soldiers um, would die. So that's certainly um, a good example of a non Middle Eastern use of soldiers in a suicide role um, to open up an area for further soldiers to move into. And I suppose the second would be, since we're addressing uh, kamikaze pilots, often people want to know, uh, why did kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Um, That's often a question that you get. And there actually is a good reason. Sometimes, uh, because the pilots who were engaged in kamikaze attacks often had very little flight training, uh, even simple maneuvers like taxiing on the runway and taking off were sometimes beyond their ability. And quite often, kamikaze pilots would crash on takeoff. So the idea was that the helmet would enable them to survive that crash such that they could, you know, get into a different aircraft and to continue to perform the mission. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? I guess just related to that, it's pretty clear that the willingness to sacrifice oneself on behalf of community is a noble human value that's shared by all cultures. Suicide bombing is really kind of unpleasant, I think. One thing, I don't know if we always articulate it, but it's because it's the use of something so noble for what is often a pretty dreadful end. 
And so just to recognize that it's not just the use of the human being, but the use of the values that that human being is trying to represent. Well, this has been a really enlightening discussion, and we'd finally like to thank Jonathan Romaneski, Corbin Williamson, and Jeffrey Lewis for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio editors and co-hosts are Patrick Pachiandi and Leticia Wiggins. Find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.